Welcome to Welcome to Oregon. I'm Max. And I'm Tina. And uh, we are here to talk about Disney's Descendants, a made-for-TV live-action sequel movie to the Disney canon. It's a Disney multiverse movie about the sons and daughters of the heroes and villains of the various cartoons, except live-action, and it's a musical, and it's amazing. We should be, uh, I mean... I think we should be clear about what the real origins for this uh, property are, though. What is that? Monster High. Go on. Okay, this is just a theory, which I think is correct, because, I mean, let's be totally honest here. This is a merchandise machine. I mean, all Disney properties are merchandising machines, but this is very, very specifically for the dolls. Well, that makes sense. You know, people might forget that the Disney princesses as they exist, as we know them, were not always a thing. It wasn't until the 90s that the marketing team at Disney realized that they should market the princess line as a concept, and then you buy all the dolls, and then there's all the stuff and the dress-up things, and it became a, a financial powerhouse for Disney when they started doing that. So, of course, they need a high school AU to go with that. Yes. Because you said it's a sequel, but really it's a next-gen high school AU. Yes. Using the parlances of the fanfic community, that is what this is. But the reason I say Monster High is I have... I'm not a doll person. I'm not involved in doll fandom. But I have seen Monster High dolls on the internet and this really seems to be what they're borrowing from when it comes to the characters outfits in this show. I am a doll person and I love Monster High dolls and you're right this is definitely the aesthetic they are aping. Which is weird because again this is something I know just from being a person on the internet but didn't Monster High launch their own line of fairy tale dolls like Ever After High or something? Ever After High is a competing line to Monster High. It is not Monster High. But they look exactly the same. How have they not sued over that it's yet? A completely di- it's a completely different thing. But you're right. Ever After High out there had to be ringing some bells for Disney that they are they they own the fairy tale market. They need to be in there with their own Ever After High. And therefore the descendants the Descendants, a movie which we are talking about because our lovely patrons over at Patreon hit our stretch goal. So now we are doing this special. This special. Thank you. We're going to be releasing it in parts in our Welcome to Storybrooke feed. But if you are a patron, you can head over to our Patreon page right now and listen to the whole thing. So I assumed that this was going to be 90 minutes I've I've seen this with I've seen this before once without you and once with you and then once when we were you know prepping for this very podcast and so much does not happen in this movie and like, yet it is two hours long how is it two hours long nothing happens the whole thing basically takes place over what three days yes and I'm sorry you're saying nothing happens but we're gonna spend a long time talking about it so you're really just telling on us. Yes. Now, I've watched this multiple times in the past, but I was usually sobriety adjacent at the time. This was the first time I'd watched the movie not sobriety adjacent, and that does sort of change a lot of the, uh, the acting is, it's some pretty rough stuff. I love this movie. 
I love this movie, but not as much as Descendants 2, by the way, which is going to be our new stretch goal. Yes, Descendants 2 is the superior film. Yes, it is one of those rare sequels that's better than the original, like Godfather 2 or Aliens. Descendants 2, basically Godfather. Mm. Mm. A more apt comparison has not been made. So you ready to just jump into it? Uh, Yeah, let's jump into it. So this movie starts with a giant exposition dump. Okay, we're going to need to do a close read of this exposition dump. And first of all, we have to say how it's illustrated. All right, so we're going old school Disney. There's a book with the title of the movie on it. And the book opens, but unlike the classic Disney uh, movies, when the book opens, it turns out it's secretly an iPad. Yes, it's just a book cover for an iPad where the story of the Descendants will play out. So once upon a time... Or more like 20 years ago, according to the narration, Beast and Belle got married. Okay, so that's where we are time-wise. Beast and Belle were married 20 years ago, and Beast decided that as a wedding present, he would unite all of the kingdoms and get himself elected king. Yes. Beast consolidated all of the disparate kingdoms of Disney, created a new country called the United States of Oradon, and got himself elected king beast basically overthrew all of the other disney kings and queens and declared himself king for life i'm sorry was elected king for life and this is not just a for life position as we will see his son is getting ready to inherit the kingdom so you know king in perpetuity so it's It's always really funny when you're in the United States and you have the values that are ascribed to the United States, but you're trying to do a fairy tale story. So it's okay, kids. He's the democratically elected king for life. Now, granted, I'm not really a history dude, but I feel like countries consolidating is not really something that happens organically. Or peacefully? Yes, let's pay attention to who we do and do not see in positions of power here. Yes, I think that's a good idea. Now, in addition to uniting all of the kingdoms, he rounded up all of the villains and the villains' sidekicks. Technically, they just say all of the villains and sidekicks, not and their sidekicks. Okay, okay, I know that, and I knew you were going to bring that up, but there's no way they mean the sidekicks of the heroes. They definitely mean the villain sidekicks, like Iago and Smee, not that raccoon. Miko. Thank you for having that right on the tip of your tongue. No, I would send Miko's ass to that island. Have the villains not suffered enough? No. So... All of the villains and their sidekicks have been sent to the Island of the Lost. Now, keep in mind, most of these, not most of these, about half of the people were dead as hell by the end of their movies. Right, so, you know. The ones we're drawn attention to are Maleficent, the evil queen from Snow White, Jafar, and Cruella de Vil, two of which were very dead by the end of their movies. 
Yeah, so that raises questions about what death is. Mm. But we'll set that aside because this is a movie for tweens. Yes. Also, we'll get into it more when the movie uh, goes. So all of the villains and their sidekicks were imprisoned on the Island of the Lost, uh, which is a magic-free zone. It is an island that is surrounded by a anti-magic bubble. And that's where all of the villains live. But not just the villains, Max. Also, their children. Children live on this island. They were forced to be raised on this island where we learn there is no magic. It is a land without magic. No technology. I was going to say no technology, but we see lots of technology. It's just they don't have internet. Hmm. (laughs) No, no internet. Fair, I guess. And food scarcity... No schooling. It's not a good place to be. And King Beast had no problem just letting all of these children fester here. Oh, and by the way, in the shots of the island, we see a Big Brother is watching you poster, but with Beast instead of Big Brother. Like, the show knows that's bad, right? The show seems to have some difficulty with good and bad. I actually want That's a shame! A show that's about the kids of heroes and villains should have a firm grasp of what good and bad is. Yes. So, the children of these villains have grown up on this island, which, honest to God, it looks like it has a Golden Gate Bridge. Well, a bridge that's been taken out so that you can't cross it. Yeah. It reminded me of... Escape from New York. No, Cataclysm from the DC Universe. Yes. When Gotham was isolated from everything. No man's land. Exactly. We learn that this narration has been being given by our main character, Mal, the daughter of Maleficent. Mm. But before we get into their story, we're going to spend some time in Auroradon. So we are introduced to Ben, who is the best character and also the worst actor. That's true. Like, in a void... Ben is by far the best character because he is the only one who has realized, hey, maybe it's kind of shitty that all of these children are stuck in this desolate wasteland, you know, from which there is no escape. Yes, he is turning 16, at which time he will be made king, which is a terrible idea. I mean, maybe not. Beast is a terrible king, so Ben will be a better king. So, okay. He tells his father and mother that his first decision as king is going to be to bring some of the villain kids over to Auroradon. Also, I just want to point this out here. The guy playing Ben is, like, in his early 20s at this point. Well, I mean, it's a Disney original movie. They all are. That's the thing. Almost all of them are. A couple of the characters are played by actual teenagers, which gives it this weird thing where you've got, like, Jay and Banner actors in their early 20s. Carlos is being played by an actual 14-year-old. Yeah, but Carlos is supposed to be younger than them, so it actually does kind of add to that. Yes. As long as we're talking about who's playing who, we should bring up that the blue fairy from Once Upon a Time is playing Belle. Which is mega distracting. It really is. It makes you wonder what the Blue Fairy's actual plans were in Once Upon a Time. Yep, she was just waiting to get rid of Belle so she could step into her shoes. 
Yes. Uh, we should say this is a very different beast than Once Upon a Time as well, and that he's not Rumpelstiltskin. That's true. He's kind of like a dad from an 80s sitcom. I was going to say he's a terrible, distracted business dad. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. He tells Ben that he didn't make any good decisions until he was 42. And so he and Belle do the squabbling straight couple thing where Belle's like, you were 28 when you married me. So we know that he was 18 when he was cursed uh, in this universe. That's exactly what I was going to bring up. You know, we love to mark what time is and when things happened. Yes. And Belle's like, you were 28 when you married me. And he says it was either you or a teapot, which, oh, God. Disturbing. Also, um, Mrs. Potts was already married. She's Mrs. Potts. Clearly, if you were going to hook up with any of the enchanted household items, it would have been the feather duster. Obviously. It's like you weren't even there, Beast. Ben tells his parents that his first decision as the 16-year-old boy king of Oradon will be a work release pro- or a, I guess it's a study release program for the children of villains. Yeah, it's more like, I was going to say exchange program, but nobody's going over there. In this movie! I was wondering how uncomfortable this is, because- I mean, on one hand, there is sort of a colonialism aspect to it. Ben is taking these kids. Oh, okay. I mean... Like, I get it's not really exactly the same thing, because this isn't children being abducted from their parents and forced to... What what were those schools called? The English schools. You're right. It does have kind of tones of the English schools, but it's a little different because a few things. These are 16-year-old children, and since Ben is, well, Carlos is 14, but these are teenage children, and since Ben is about to become unquestioned ruler of everything at this age, I think we can consider that they are of an age where they're making their own choices, or mm-hmm. at least they're, they have agency to make their own choices, and this is the age they're being invited over, they're not being taken as children. Yes. And I believe the idea is not that we're going to bring over the villains and make them like us and then in that way wipe out their culture, but rather maybe we shouldn't have been imprisoning people because their parents were evil and let's just discontinue this entire experiment. Yeah. 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 But I, but there is, there is a lot of weird in-group, out-group stuff that this show does address In a way where sometimes I feel like they know what they're doing and sometimes I think they don't. So we'll definitely be touching on that some more. Well, the sequel does a much better job deconstructing sort of the fallout from the decision to isolate all of the villains on their own island where they can breed as they will. I was going to say, Descendants 2, I feel the person at the helm was definitely definitely understood the weird revolutionary implications of this world in a way that I think the person who wrote this movie kind of understood or sometimes understood. Well, let's not give one person credit for this. I'm sure that this was a movie that was aggressively written by committee. Of course. I mean, the majority of people in the room. Yes. So Ben talks about the four children he's going to bring over to uh, Oridon. Mal, daughter of Maleficent. Jay, son of Jafar. I'm going to put a pin in that. We'll put a pin in that. Carlos, the son of Cruella de Vil. And Evie, the daughter of the Evil Queen, who is not using her official Disney name, Brunhilde. She's just going by the Evil Queen. 
She always does that. Yeah. I mean, we had Regina, but... Okay, let's pull that pin out. Okay. Jay is the son of Jafar? Really? Because let me tell you how he's coded in this movie. His villainous thing is coded as... Stealing. As stealing. He's a thief. You know what Jafar wasn't in the Disney movie? A thief. You know who was a thief in that movie? Aladdin. Just saying, it's a little weird that Jay seems to be coded more as Aladdin's son than Jafar's son, especially when you think about how much more villainous Aladdin is than, well, Jafar's pretty villainous, but especially when you think about how villainous Aladdin was. By uh, Disney standards. Yes. And and for, for a fuller view on this, I suggest, as I have on the Welcome to Storybook podcast, that everyone go watch the Star Kid musical Twisted. It's all available on YouTube. It is great. It's wicked, but from the point of view of Jafar, it's amazing. Also, we see Jafar as a merchant. Mm-hmm. Like the merchant at the beginning of the movie. Yes. Which is a character who, according to early drafts of the script and also fan theories, is actually the genie. Yeah, a human version of the genie. So, the two things Jafar is coded as in this in this movie is... The character that was the genie and the character that was Aladdin. He basically has no attributes of actual Jafar. Yeah. Okay. So my theory is that Aladdin somehow switched places with him. Or perhaps, perhaps... Jafar switched places with Aladdin. Because remember, Jafar was a genie at the end of Aladdin. Yeah. So maybe he found a magical way to switch places with Aladdin. And the character that we think is Jafar is actually Aladdin who has been swapped with Jafar. Well, apparently we are getting some genie stuff in the upcoming third Descendants movie. I'm so excited for the third Descendants movie. So we'll be able to explore that further there. Okay, let's let's move on then. Hey there, this is Tina from the future. We recorded this podcast a few weeks ago, and just yesterday we saw the live-action Aladdin movie, where Jafar is portrayed as a man who used to be Aladdin. He used to be a thief and a street rat, and through clever manipulation worked his way into the position of vizier. So while I'm normally opposed to this trend identified by Lindsay Ellis in her Beauty and the Beast video of Disney live-action movies serving as kind of a fix-it fic for the cartoon. I do like that they decided to make the live-action Jafar gel with the Descendants portrayal of Jafar. Okay, back to our original recording. So, Ben wants to bring these children over because, hey, maybe forcing them to live on an island prison isn't great. Now, I get the feeling Ben specifically chose the four kids who were kids of the people that his dad had ranted were the worst villains. Weird Gaston wasn't there. I mean, come on. I mean, Gaston is sort of low-tier Disney threat-wise. Beast took him out pretty quickly. By accident. Yeah. He even says Maleficent is the worst villain. I do think that Ben was kind of pushing hard specifically i'm gonna bring over the kids of the worst of the worst yeah because you know hey everyone can be redeemed and also maybe children aren't inherently you know smaller versions of their parents dad who makes me dress like him maybe we shouldn't punish children for the sins of their mothers and fathers 
Interesting that Ursula was not considered one of the worst of the worst in this movie. I know that her daughter appears in the next movie, but... Instead of Cruella DeVille, whose main issue in this movie seems to be that she definitely has mental issues. Well, I mean, she killed a lot of dogs? Yeah. So, we cut from Ben successfully convincing his dad to give this idea a shot to... The first musical number! All right, so it's a song called Rotten to the Core. They say I'm trouble. They say I'm bad. They say I'm evil. And that makes me glad. A dirty no good, down to the bone. Your worst nightmare can't take me home. So I got some mischief in my blood. Can you blame me? I never got no love. They think I'm callous, a low-life hood. I feel so useless. Misunderstood. Mirror, mirror on the wall. Who's the baddest of them all? Welcome to my So it's this song about how these four kids are rotten to the core, how they're the worst of the worst, they're super bad, blah, blah, blah. Okay, but what does that mean in the context of living on the Isle of the Lost? Yeah, like, y'all don't have, like, special magic powers or anything. Like, again, there's no magic on this island. You are just four random-ass teenagers who dance in synchronization down the streets of this... Okay, in in, in retrospect, four random-ass teenagers who wander through the marketplace dancing are exactly the kind of kids who would sing that they're the worst of the worst. That is true. There is a very inflated sense of evil here. I also want to point out that this song opens with Mal spray-painting graffiti that says, Long Live Evil, but it's not graffiti style it's a style that would fit very nicely on a patch or enamel pin that i'm sure you can buy at disney.com yes it is a logo you know what they're not the worst of the worst objectively speaking they are just really on brand they have perfected their brand you know what they are they're influencers oh god (laughs) they are isle of the lost influencers so We mostly see them, they're wandering around this crappy island doing a very organized dance number about how evil they are that somehow accumulates other people to do backup for them. That's how musical numbers work. Okay. I want to just bring attention to a couple people in the background. One, Mal uh, walks across, like, Mal walks through this guy's house, a guy who's taking a bath, a guy who is wearing a Mad Hatter hat. So I'm wondering where the baseline for villain is here. Oh, right? Also, one of the people in the background of this dance thing is wearing a Lost Boys-style furry hat. Yes, uh, like a bear hat. Yeah, so are the Lost Boys here? Oh my god, maybe. That could definitely be. Yeah. Like, I'm just wondering what, what is... What qualifies you to be on this island? Okay, see, I didn't think that that was, that that hat was meant to be, it's a bear hat. It's like a, it's like a costume bear hat. Mm -hmm. 
I didn't think that was meant to indicate a lost boy. I thought that that was meant to indicate that he was a fur character, as they say in the Disney parks. Mm. But that obviously there are only face characters in this movie. But I can't think of an evil bear. I mean, surely Baloo is an Auroradon. Unless, unless King Beast, unless King Beast, afraid of his beastly nature, decided that all sentient animals were also evil. Yeah, we don't see a sentient animal until the second movie, which was unnecessary and unpleasant. Wait, what sentient animal do we see in the second movie? They give the dog the ability to talk. Oh, right. I forgot about that. I blocked it out. The thing is, it's such an unwanted subplot that none of the other characters acknowledge the talking dog at any point. Like, he's there and he's talking, but it's not important at all. He's voiced by Bobby Moynihan, who you might know from SNL and also other things. I do know Bobby Moynihan from SNL and also other things. I I do want to bring up, though, that I wish that there had been more fur characters but done as face characters. I wish we had seen a human version of Scar on Isle of the Lost. Ooh, that would have been cool. Maybe we will in the third movie. Fingers crossed. Yeah. I mean, we see, we see Ursula and... And you know what? I don't want to get. I don't want to get ahead of us. The second movie is much better. Una's awesome. Ursula is basically just a crack, and you see barely off screen. This song and dance number is interrupted by the arrival of the parents. Yes. Okay. What is Christian Chenoweth doing here? What is Christian Chenoweth doing here? Because Christian Chenoweth is this movie's Maleficent, and she is like. Head and shoulders above everyone else in this movie. She is way too high-end for this movie, but also not a person who I would in a million years have cast as Maleficent. Like, if you asked me who was the number one person I would cast as Maleficent, I would have said Angelina Jolie. Hmm. Good on them, Disney. And then probably every other actress I could think of, and then maybe Kristen Chenoweth, who I love and adore, but do not think of as a high-cheekboned camp villain i mean credit to her she's committed a thousand and crazy percent to this well i mean she's amazing she apparently can do anything also i need to bring up that Kristen chenoweth is tiny she is like a tiny woman she's like four foot five yeah i remember they had to whenever she was talking to bach they had to have her on stairs so it wouldn't be clear that the munchkin is towering over her in the musical wicked yes and yet, and yet here she is, Maleficent, probably the tallest, willowiest villain of them all. And all right. Okay, so let's be clear. This is terrible casting, but also I love it so much and I can't imagine anyone else being this version of Maleficent. I know. It's like, you know what? It's, it's almost as though, and I genuinely believe this. They somehow got word that they could get Kristen Chenoweth, and they told her that she could play whoever she wanted. And she said Maleficent, and they were like, well, it is Kristen Chenoweth. I assume she'll pull it off. And she did. And she did. Yeah, I would imagine that they'd be like, hey, do you want to play the fairy godmother? And she's like, nope, Maleficent. See, that I could see her as the fairy godmother in this movie, assuming that they then would have made that role bigger, because... Kristen goddamn Chenoweth. Although, honestly, now that I think about it, her role in this movie is not that large. Oh, yeah, she's not in it a lot. But, I mean... None of the parents are really in it that much, but I feel like she's the star. Oh, she definitely is. 
so at the end of the song, Mal steals candy from a baby and Maleficent shows up. And she's like, that's very good, but give it back. You need to learn the difference between being mean and being truly evil. Yeah, and then she like rubs the candy on her armpit and gives it back to the baby. It's disgusting. <laughs> so Maleficent wants Mal to go to this goody-goody school full of, you know, pretty pink princesses so that Mal can get her the fairy godmother's wand. Yeah, the four kids are different shades of dubiousness about whether or not they want to go to Aurora Dawn. Mal will basically do anything her mother tells her to because that is her character. It's not very bad to be a mom pleaser, Mal, but that's okay. Carlos is worried, Corella DeVille's son, because he heard that there are dogs there, and dogs are apparently vicious pack beasts that will tear children apart for disobeying their mothers. Yes, his mother has raised him to be petrified of dogs. And Jay doesn't want to go because he thinks he won't be allowed to wear leather, which is hilarious. And also, they totally do let him wear leather there, so no worries. Evie, on the other hand, is totally cool with going there because as the evil queen's daughter, it is her destiny to marry a rich prince. Yep. She's very interested in upward mobility. I mean, why wouldn't she be? I think it's interesting that of all of the children, Evie's the only one who's been really raised to long for the station that she had before banishment. So she really is a displaced princess in a way that we don't see anyone else as being. Mm. And I mean, I know the evil queen is the only one of the main four who was a queen, but Mal doesn't have any tendencies towards being a fairy, despite the fact that her mother is a fairy. And Carlos... Oh, sweet Carlos. Poor sweet Carlos. All he does is not want to get on people's bad sides, which... Jesus Christ, this poor kid. And then there's Jay, which is sort of the through line for Jay in these movies. And then there's Jay. He sure is good at having muscles. He he was one of the shirtless werewolves in the Twilight movies. So. And it seems about right. Yeah. Yeah. When Maleficent orders Mal to go get the wand, she does this eye contact thing where both of their eyes glow green so that you know that she's using some sort of manipulation on her, except not really because there's no magic here. Yeah, I think it's just her intimidating her. Like, her eyes go all dragony. Yeah, but we know that she can't turn into a dragon because there's no magic here. I guess she's just getting by on sheer force of personality. Which... Kirsten Chenoweth was the right person for that then. So each of the evil children goes to uh, their parent to sort of debrief, I guess. Is it debriefing if you're doing it before a mission? Is it briefing then? Yeah, it's briefing. So they're going to brief. Corella does not want Carlos to go because she has a very unhealthy codependent relationship with him. There's something wrong with this Corella Deville, right? Well, not wrong, but she's definitely got something mentally up with her. I feel like a lot of people don't know what to do with Cruella Deville when they mash her up. Once upon a time, did Cruella Deville right? She's basically the best villain they ever had. Mm. And they did it by giving her a desire for upward mobility that Cruella Deville in the original story does not have because she is already upward. Upward. Cruella DeVille is basically the evilness of capitalism. She's all-consuming and crushing anyone beneath her and claiming everything for herself. 
the fur coat is just conspicuous consumption because that is the core of Cruella's evil. So if you have a story where Cruella Deville's power and money has already been stripped from her, there's nothing to code her with to give her her character other than to make her grasping for power again, which is what they did with the evil queen and Evie, or to have her have a weird animal obsession, which is not really what it was about in 101 Dalmatians. Yeah, here she has this, like, little stuffed animal sewed into her shoulder that she talks to, and she makes it talk for her. And she's obsessed with keeping Carlos around, mostly because it seems like he's the only person who takes care of her. I think we're meant to see that she treats her son like a pet. Yeah. Because, again, the animal thing, but... They've told us that there are no animals on the Isle of the Lost. So now you have Cruella de Vil without money, without power, and with no real animals around her. What in the world are you going to give her as a character trait? So honestly, having her treat Carlos like a dog was the best they could have done. Yeah, I mean, fair. Meanwhile, Jafar doesn't want Jay to leave because Jafar is a merchant on this island, and all of his wares are just things that Jay steals for him. Yep. So this is really not a Jafar thing. I mean, I guess Jafar had Aladdin steal something for him in the movie, but... Like, I mean, okay. That's a, yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a stretch. Mm-hmm. And Evie's mom is like, look, just find the richest dude you can find there, lock his ass down, and make sure that his castle has an extra room for mummy. And... Maleficent reminds them all to keep their eye on the prize, in this case the prize being getting revenge, which is good. If you need to be motivated to do something and you can't come up with another motivation, do it for spite. Honestly, I love Maleficent's dynamic with the other villains because all of them are graphically uninterested in, you know, revenge or really even much getting ahead in life except, say, the evil queen. Like, they're all mostly just interested in bettering their station within the context of this island. Yeah, most of them have accepted their station at this point. It's interesting that Maleficent tries to use revenge as a motivator, considering that, okay, people we don't see in this movie. Hmm. Sleeping Beauty, Aladdin, we do see Snow White, but... Very briefly and in a real weird context. Also, let's talk about whether or not Snow White got punished later. Or... Who would Cruella even feel like she needed to get revenge on? The Darlings? I mean, also we don't see them. We definitely don't see them. I mean, why would they be invited to Oridon? Oh. Yeah. Yeah. So. The Evil Queen gives Evie her magic mirror, which is no longer a mirror on the wall, but now basically a compact. I do really love the dynamic the Evil Queen and Maleficent have. Weirdly enough, it is sort of similar to the dynamic that we saw Regina having with Maleficent in season one, where they are long-term friends who are like, they're like, they are friends due to circumstance more than anything else. Like, they're, it's so weird. They've got this dynamic where you can tell that they've known each other for a really long time and they may have been like at each other's throats at some point, but by now they're just the person 
they know the best. I was thinking of them as Hilda and Zelda Spellman from the 1990s Sabrina TV show. Yeah, there is sort of an aspect of that to it. There's kind of a sisterly, I hate you, but I love you dynamic. Which... I do wish we spent a little more time with the parents. I know this is I know that this is a made for TV movie that was basically created to sell merchandise to tweens, but I really feel like you're showing our age when you say you wish they had spent more time with the parents. Yeah. Yeah. Accurate. So, anyway, the Evil Queen gives Evie her magic mirror, which as I said is now compact because the magic has shrunk. And well, well uh, yeah. I love that. And Maleficent gives Mal her spell book, which is no use to her now in this Isle Without Magic, but Mal will be able to use once she gets to Auroradon. And the boys get nothing, because they are barely characters. They get male privilege. They're fine. Actually, Carlos gets a character arc. Jay doesn't. No. No, he does not. So... Jafar gives uh, Jay a very short speech where he tells him, remember, there's no I in team. Remember that in case that becomes relevant to what very little story arc you get later in this movie. Spoilers, Jay gets redeemed by joining a sports team. Redeemed. Sports. Yeah, we're going to see some Aurorodon-specific sports, so that's fun. Apparently Beast was super into lacrosse. Except it's not really lacrosse. So the car arrives to take the kids to Aurorodon. By the way, there are cars. What time period this exists oh in God, is so I know. big. <laughs> yes. Well, but it, it, there should be cars because Cruella de Vil is here and she iconically had a car. So it would be silly if there weren't cars. Yeah. Also, iPads are a thing. Like um, The next movie has a major plot point involving a 3D printer. I think it's safe to say that the time is now. Like, the movie takes place now for some reason. All right. So as they're all piling into the car, Maleficent makes significant eye contact with Mal. Yeah, she gives a, like, go get him, I'm watching you gesture to Mal. I do like how all of the other parents came down to see the kids off, but... Maleficent decided to stand dramatically in an overhanging tower. Uh, yeah, she said goodbye from her balcony because that's who she is. Okay, the, this this next scene is something that I have strong feelings about, so let's, have let's get into it. All right, the kids get into the back of the limo, and in the back of the limo, they discover that it is stocked, as limos often are, but this one... I guess because it's children. It's not stocked with alcohol, but in fact, just jars and jars of candy. And the boys go crazy consuming all of this candy, which is not like anything they've ever tasted before. Not just because they live with food insecurity, but because candy and sugary treats and things are literally not a thing on the Isle of the Lost. Yeah, Carlos points out he doesn't know how to describe sweet. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's it's sugary sweet, so it's sweeter than... Um, Whatever the hell they're getting on the island. I mean, we saw him steal an apple, but this is an entirely new kind of sweet. So the limo drives out across the, the bridge, which the kids freak out because they think that they're going to be driven into the ocean. But instead, a magical road appears and they make it safely to the other side. So we're supposed to be laughing at these kids 
going crazy consuming food after they've lived with food insecurity their whole lives. And also, we're supposed to laugh at them for thinking that the heroes were going to kill them, even though the heroes have trapped them in a prison their entire life. So, Mal asks the uh, limo driver if a button on his dashboard was what opened the portal bridge thing between Oridon and the Island of the Lost. And he's like, no, this button is. And he holds up a completely separate button. And he's, and then he's like, and this button does this. And he closes the window between him and the kids, which is a pretty funny move on his part. Although also kind of an asshole thing to pull. Although I like that Mal is like, respect. Yeah, Mal's like, fair. <laughs> it's great. So the limo pulls up to the castle Oridon school thing yeah the kids are all waving signs that say welcome in the font of disney world because mm-hmm. yes that's what you should feel like you should feel like you're pulling up to disney world and the marching band is playing a song and there is a girl in who a is greeting them in a wheelchair she never says a line we don't really pay attention to her but i just wanted to point her out because i am convinced that she is ariel or rather, Ariel's daughter. Melody? Yeah, but not Melody, because this this isn't accurate to the made-for-TV movies. Well, you had a theory about Ariel's role in this. I do have a theory about Ariel's role in this. I think that Ariel is going to come back in the 10th movie. I, when they decide they're done with all of these movies, I believe that Ariel is going to come back with all of her sea creatures Aquaman style and take back Aurorodon from Beast. Well, she's the Daenerys uh, Targaryen of the Descendants universe. That is my belief. That is my firm belief. Because, I mean... Mother of fishes. Ariel is the one who launched the Disney Renaissance. She is a vitally important character within the Disney princess canon. So it's very bizarre that she has not been represented in either one of the Descendants movies that have come out yet. Ariel Tengeren. Undrowned. Yeah. So the limo pulls up and Jay and Carlos are fighting and they fall out of it fighting over the last remaining candy bar. Well, and also, like, they took, like, the mini fridge out of the limo because, you know... They grew up having to scrabble for everything. I also just... One of Evie's character traits in this movie and the following movie and presumably the third movie is that she's a fashion designer. Mm -hmm. She's the one who's fashionable and she actually designs clothes and makes clothes for them. And her purse looks like the box that the evil queen keeps Snow White's heart in. It's awesome. Throwing that out there. If you want to get me something for my birthday, that would be a good thing. I'm sure it is available on Disney's website. Right, probably. Or at Hot Topic. Oh, yeah. So, I do really love the low-key limo driver who just tells them to leave the mini fridge. (laughs) Yes. But they're greeted by the headmistress of the school, the fairy godmother. Who Jay immediately hits on. Like, I think he's supposed to be hitting on... I think he's supposed to be hitting on Sleeping Beauty's daughter, but honest to God, the way the scene is framed, it really seems like he's hitting on the fairy godmother who okay. runs the school, by the way. He is definitely hitting on... Audrey. On Audrey, Aurora's daughter, but I I, I do see it. Arguably, he could also be hitting on Ben because a weird running through line throughout this movie 
is that Ben seems to be actively trying to seduce every member of the evil kid squad. Yeah, yeah, the evil kid squad is like, yeah, we're the evil, we're the villain kids, and this is our boyfriend, Ben. Yeah, that is basically where this movie ends, so. Okay, a couple things here that are important. Yes. Mal, like, zooms in on the fairy godmother because she has the mission. Mm -hmm. She's like, oh yeah, you're the fairy godmother, you are the one who did all that magical shit for Cinderella with your wand. And the fairy godmother tells her that here in Auroradon... They have stopped using magic. Why? My theory as to why they stopped, they all voluntarily gave up magic because they don't need it because everything is perfect here. You know who doesn't have magic? King Beast. Mm. Mm. So I'm just saying I have some doubts about how voluntary everyone giving up their magic was. Yeah, there's a darker story here. Not to be Johnny, everything needs a dark backstory. But, I mean, come on. So, Ben's like, hi, I'm Ben. And and Miles' like, Prince Ben. And Evie's like, oh, a prince. Hello, I'm Evie. My mom was the evil queen. I'm, 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 I'm a princess. And Audrey tries to mean girl her? Is like, um, your mom was deposed. You're not a princess here. And I'm like, oh, really, Audrey? Because last time I look, Beast took over your mom's kingdom. So maybe turn it down a notch. Yeah, it doesn't exactly seem like you're much of a princess anymore either. Unless princess and prince are like senatorial roles in this new government. Like in She-Ra. Yeah. Princess is just... The representative of whatever district you're from. Okay, either way, your mother has been deposed and Beast has taken over. So, maybe shut up. So, the fairy godmother uh, tells them that she's happy to have them here, but they're going to need to go over rules, curfews, and they've been enrolled in a class called Remedial Goodness. Oh my. Wow, that's, that's condescending. That's not good. So the whole crowd disperses, except for Ben and Audrey, who's, like, trailing him. But Ben is just really, really trying to connect with every one of these kids. It's adorable. It is. He's trying so hard. So hard. And Ben, poor, sweet, stupid Ben, does not know how to talk to them. No, he does not. Their experiences are completely foreign to this guy. Which will actually be basically the plot of the next movie. Your experiences are not universal, Ben. Oh, and then Audrey, who I hate for most of this movie, but she tells Mal that she forgives her for the fact that her mother tried to kill her mother. And Mal tells her that she forgives her for the fact that... Her grandparents. Her grandparents failed to invite Maleficent to a party, which is amazing. It's the only indicator here that mal has fairy blood because that is such a that is such a magical fairy thing attempted murder is on the same level as bad hospitality i do think it's interesting that they have this weird mean girl talking to other mean girl thing where they you know i don't blame you for this well i don't blame you for that and then they go ha 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 which seems like a very specific trope it's weirdly choreographed it's weirdly choreographed meanness yes 
So Ben decides to take them on a tour of the school. He shows off the giant-ass statue of his dad, which looks like his dad, but then when you clap, it turns into the beast. Right? It's got a clapper on it. You like clap on, clap on to beast in human form. When it transforms into beast form, Carlos freaks out because he's never seen any animals and he's afraid of them because his mom did a number on his head. Also, he tries to clap off the animal and can't do it. Oh, poor Carlos. Yeah. So Mel's interested in, obviously, she has the mission. She's like, so y'all have any magic here? I mean, I'd imagine the fairy godmother didn't throw out her wand. And Ben's like, we basically ditched it when everyone got super into technology. But the fairy godmother's wand does exist. It's going to be used in my upcoming coronation. Maybe keep that in mind. Yes. Also, we keep it at a museum, so keep that in mind, too. So we're introduced to Doug. Yes, he comes down the stairs so that he can be introduced to the villain kids. He was in the marching band, so he's still in his marching band uniform. He, he's going to be their, what do you call it, the person you shadow when you show up to a school? Your student mentor? Yeah, he's basically going to be their student mentor, which I would think would be Ben under these circumstances. But... Ben is too important for that. speaking of let's talk about who doug is all right and let's talk about what doug is doing here so doug is the son of dopey so just putting that out there dopey fucks dopey fucks now here's my question max Mm -hmm. who does dopey fuck i'm gonna cut you off before you can answer because every single main character in this movie is the daughter or son of a hero or villain except for doug who is Dopey's son. And you know whose children we don't see? Snow White's. That is correct. You know who else we don't see? We don't see Snow White's Prince Charming. Nope. So, make about what you will. Mm Mm-hmm. Also, we see Snow White later in this movie, who is very much not a princess anymore. Right? What happened to Snow White? Because we can infer from Parents' Day from what we see at Parents' Day later, that everyone else may not be kings and queens anymore, but have maintained some station under this new world order Beast has instituted. My theory is that when Beast united the kingdoms, Snow White refused to bend the knee. Oh, yeah. And perhaps, perhaps her prince did, and that is why we don't see him, and that's why we don't see them together. Just a theory. Just throwing it out there. But unlike Ariel, did not engage in open rebellion. Right. So... Doug's running thing is that he can't remember all of the names of the dwarves who are his uncles, so that's pretty fucked up, bro. He's got six uncles. That's a lot of uncles to keep track of. Also, he sees Evie and says, hi-ho. Which, this is a... This is a kid's movie! (laughs) This is a kid's movie. Maybe, maybe, tone it down a bit, Doug. Um, okay, Evie's into it, though. She is like... She is ready to jump those dwarf bones. Yeah, she is down to clown. Doug brings them to his... Um, do you think Do you think that the sons of the dwarves would be, like, sweet taboo sex for her because she grew up the daughter of the evil queen? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. This is definitely a, you know, dating what daddy doesn't like situation. It's practically Romeo and Juliet. It is funny because when Doug's tr- getting them to their new rooms, he's going over the dwarves again and Carlos ends up helping him out. 
Yeah, why does Carlos, son of Cruella de Vil, know all the dwarves? Well, we never find out who any of the evil kids' other parents are, so... So more questions is what you're telling me? There are more questions here. Carlos is pretty short. So the kids go up to their, their dorm rooms, and because they are on brand, the girls have to close their drapes, making it dark... So that they can feel more at home, which is ridiculous. We saw there was plenty of light in the Isle of the Lost. Yeah, everything's neon, dudes. Who are are you kidding? So, Carlos and Jay immediately get super into video games. Yeah, Carlos finds a Kinex in his room and is like, yes, this is what what it's all about. And Mal pulls Jay to the side and she's like, Jay, I notice you've been stealing all of this stuff. Why? And he's like, it's what I do. This is my one personality trait. And Mal is like, okay, but our plan here will end with us ruling the world. And since all of this stuff is in the world, you will then have it. So stay focused, man. Seriously, like, no point. Mal is really mad that none of the other kids seem to have the mission. Yeah, which is fair. I mean, it's like when you're in a group project and you're the only one who's doing any work. Oh, God. Oh, God. You're making me relate to Mal. This is this is the situation Mal's in. You should relate to Mal. She's She is the only one who cares. She's basically the Leslie Nope of this movie. Yeah. She asks, she asks Evie to give her the magic mirror so that she can figure out their next step. Which, turns out, is going to be robbing the museum. Because that is where the wand currently is. She does a little thing where she holds the mirror and she starts to do the incantation and it's like, mirror, mirror on the... in my hand. It takes a little bit, but they they use a combination of the mirror and a laptop Jay stole to find where the museum is. Right, well, they have to map quest it. God. Uh, meanwhile, they're having really... they're having a lot of trouble pulling Carlos away from the video game because, you know... Well, it's funny because his trait next movie will be that he is the tech-savvy one. So it's nice to see that they had that in mind right from right from the start. Yeah. So Jay's the muscle. Carlos is the tech. Carlos is the tech. Evie is the face. Mal is the... The brain. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty good crew. This is a decent role-playing game crew if you wanted to, you know. Yeah. Of course, Mal's going to end up doing most of the heavy lifting, too. Pretty typical. I mean, you have a sorcerer or wizard or what have you, like, after the early stages, they're going to be the ones who are taking everyone out. Yeah, that's true. So they find their way to the museum, and it's basically a Smithsonian, except for all the magical shit from the movies. We briefly see Triton's trident. Mm -hmm. We see Beast's rose, which is weird, because that rose lost all its flowers. Maybe it's just like a replica. Mm. Yeah. I would assume a lot of these are replicas, except possibly the trident, because, because going by your theory. <laughs> yes, because Ariel has been overthrown. We also see Cinderella's glass slipper and the genie's lamp. And of course, the spinning wheel. Hmm. Because in this movie, Mal is the most important Disney princess. Yes. Wait, villain. I meant villain. Freudian slip. So Mal decides that she's going to use her magic. It's so weird that Jay and Carlos laugh at the spinning wheel. Well, they're like, what kind of weapon is a spinning wheel? And you know what the answer to that is? An effective one. That's exactly what I was going to say. Although not really, because Mal uses a little incantation 
to get the guard to prick his finger on the spinning wheel. It doesn't work immediately, and everyone starts making fun of, well, the boys start making fun of Mal for it. But it's just like we've talked about before. You have to give magic a second to work. Everyone calm down. Also, this is literally the first spell she's ever cast. Yeah, honestly, I think she did a pretty good job. In the background, I'm just noticing that there appear there's what appears to be a golden ball. Hmm. Which... Wait, from the Black Cauldron? Oh, is that what it is? I mean, I would be wicked surprised if that's what it was because that's a deep-ass dive. Well, I was thinking even weirder that it was the golden ball from... The original Princess and the Frog story? Exactly, but that doesn't make it into the Disney movie. Yeah, uh, in Disney canon, the only magic ball I can think of like that is Alanwi's ball from the Black Cauldron, which, if there's anything Disney does not like to reference, it's the Black Cauldron. Or alternatively, the map ball from Treasure Planet, which also does not seem like something Disney would reference here. I think... I think it's a Black Cauldron reference. Holy shit, a Black Cauldron reference in a Disney property. I know. I'm as surprised as if... Well, no, I'm not that surprised. I'd be more surprised if they referenced Song of the South. But I'm (laughs) almost as surprised. So once the security guard does fall asleep, Jay decides that it's his turn to affect the plot because he is the brawn. And he goes to kick in the door. But before he can, Mal casts a spell to make it open up without him knocking into it. And he just goes flying through it. Poor Jay, he can't even tangentially affect the plot. Literally the only thing he was going to do to affect the plot, and Mal cast a spell to make it unnecessary. So, apparently the spinning wheel has lost its touch over time because the guy is just regular asleep and not enchanted asleep. Right, they have to sneak past him. He's not going to be out for a hundred years. Sadly. Okay. Dang, really coming at that guard. Yeah, whatever. I have to say, um... I had so much fun at this museum. It does look like I would go to this museum. It looks fun. They've got like wax figures of the Disney villains. Ah, that is what we see next. They go into the gallery of villains and see wax statues of all of their parents. In their prime, as it were. Yes. Uh, it's, it's a little strange that in this gallery, we see the four parents of these four children I feel like a villain's gallery would break down by, like, ability, maybe, or... Or era? Yeah. It's weird that the room would have these four, but maybe they did it by evilness, and we already know that for some reason, Aurorodon believes that these are the foremost evil, so... It's a really cool scene, too, because the kids are really impressed... It's that moment that happens when you're a teenager where you realize that your parents are real people who had lives before you and maybe were actually cool before you were born. Yeah, they're seeing them in their original context, which is not something they've seen before. They're seeing their their parents at the height of their power, and it's real freaky. It's nice. It's it's a you know what? I think we're supposed to be I think we're supposed to be afraid, but it's a nice moment. Also, It causes Mal to have an extended hallucination. Yep. Well, see, Mal was already in awe of her mother, so she needs something next level. So she has this little, like, Don's Lament-esque song that she's beginning, where she's talking about how she needs her mother's guidance, and 
I'm calling it a Don's Lament-esque song because she gets like three lines into it before she gets interrupted. Right. And then the statue comes to life because if you thought that we weren't going to give Christian Chenoweth a song, you are not knowing what you're talking about. Okay, so let's be clear. This is the best song. Really? You don't like you don't like the Be Our Guest rap more? You keep you keep saying it like I think the Be Our Guest rap is the worst song in this movie. It's not. But I mean it is real bad, but I mean I have terrible taste. I actually really like the villain song, the Rotten to the Core song that they sing at the beginning. Okay, I have issues with basically every song in this movie that's not this song, that's not Maleficent's song about how cool it is to be evil. Yes, this song is Don't You Want to Be Evil. I have tried my whole life long to do the worst I can. Clawed my way to victory, built my master plan. Now the time has come, my dear, for you to take your place. Promise me you'll try to be an absolute disgrace. (laughs) Don't you want to be evil like me? Don't you want to be cruel? Don't you want to be nasty and brutal and cool? And when you grab that one, that's when your reign begins. Who wants an evil queen without a sack of sins? Don't you want to be a heart? And it's incredibly campy. It's... It's perfect. It's sort of an... It's a vaudeville song. Yes. Yes, it definitely is. It is not going to be a breakaway pop hit. Unlike basically every other song in here, which was designed to be on some Disney for tweens pop album. Yes. Which you can buy on Disney's website. (laughs) Or on iTunes. Or on iTunes. Yeah. Everything else was very clearly marketed towards, you know the tween audience song wise i mean was this song just a gift for the parents who were watching this show with their kids i think it is it is kirsten chenoweth just hamming it up by the way mal starts the song saying that her mom wants her to be a thief in the night and i'm like like jesus the thief in the night is very specific connotations i think to maybe it. the phrase thief in the night stuck in someone's head and they weren't super evangelical so they didn't realize what it meant and it just made its way into the song somehow i think that's what happened okay but maleficent sings a song about how they're going to rule as mother and daughter and she licks her staff (laughs) yes she does that's some weirdly erotic imagery to have in here this is a weird song it's great because kristen chenoweth again is so committed to everything she does here That's what she does. She just goes in there and gives it her all. The song literally ends with Maleficent pulling a alphaba and defying gravity through real obvious wire work. She's holding the staff out the way alphaba holds the broom in Wicked, and she, like, ascends up into the ceiling. Did Kristen Chenoweth agree to do this because she saw Idina Menzel in the harness and thought it looked, like, fun and wanted to do it herself? Could be. But Evie's like, Mal, stop hallucinating. Stealing. We're stealing now. Yeah, Evie's like, uh, who has the mission now? So they find the wand. It's floating in like a beam of light. You know, one of those alien tractor beams of light. Yeah. 
And Jay's like, oh, well, this is easy. I'll just reach in and grab it. And Mel's like, I'm sure it's not that easy. And the tractor beam of light throws Jay backwards. And it sets off an old-timey siren. Like... Which wakes up the guard, who's going to come running now. And Jay's like, um, that's excessive. It could have knocked me out or set off the siren, but it had to do both. So, there are no consequences for this. Well, the guard, he's just a guard. He's not, like, a cop. He he goes into the room, and the wand's still there. The kids get out. No harm, no foul, you know? There's a bit where Carlos pulls a... He pulls a Han Solo. As they're trying to run out, the phone at the security guard station rings, so Carlos picks up and is like, nothing to see here. Like... Except unlike Han Solo, he's successful at it. Yeah, he's like, nothing to see here. It was just a malfunction in the... Reads off the name of the security system. Yeah, which again, showing that Carlos is the tech-savvy one. Uh, So Mal's like, Carlos, what are you doing? And Carlos is like, I was getting him off our tail. Like tail but yeah thanks to carlos saying it was just a false alarm i guess the security guard's not gonna check in with anyone yep we are literally never going to have to deal with this plot point again yep we really just went to the museum so we could hear kristen chenoweth sing which is a decent reason to go to a museum i'd go to a museum to hear kristen chenoweth sing oh absolutely so that takes us to a commercial break and that takes us to the end of the first part of our descendants special yeah check back next time for part two unless you are a patron in which case you can go to our patreon page and listen to the whole thing right now